So chapter three, yoga of action. We're on topic two, intellectual appeal for action, verses four to 19. Krishna explains to Arjuna why action is inevitable. Because of our vasanas. Therefore, he must act. He must fight the battle. When we have a desire, it's just recapping from last week. When we have a desire, we act on that desire. We have two options. We can either perform the action with ego, egocentric desire. What can I get from this? How can I benefit from this? When you act in this way, you increase your desire. Or you can act with the mind on a higher thought, higher ideal. How can I serve? How can I benefit others through my action? How can I develop spiritually? Ultimately, how can I reach self-realization? If you perform the same action in this way, you reduce your desires. The action is the same, but it's the attitude behind the action that matters. This is the path to self-realization through action. This is Karma Yoga, which this chapter is talking about. Any questions? So, um, so some of us may have vasanas to do good, mm-hmm. and within that action of performing good action, we might, although it's a right way to act, we might still have this desire because we've got this vasana to do good, mm-hmm. to continue doing good. So, for example, the action that we're doing, we're still focusing on we're still increasing that desire because we want to carry on doing good. So if we're thinking about ultimately reducing our desires, that action can still create more desires, right? Even though it's a good action. Absolutely. Absolutely. It can create more desires. But first of all, acting in this way, you're not increasing your egocentric desires. Okay, you're increasing your unselfish desires, the desires to act, act to benefit others. So it's a one step, at least it's a step forward. Yeah. Now, if you get attached to that action, let's say a charity you're working for, you or you know something you're doing for others, you can get attached to that as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, And that is also pitfall if your goal is self-realization. If your goal is just to help, that's fine. You're increasing more desires to help others. So that's a step. And that may be your goal in life. I just want to help others. But if you want to reach a goal of ultimately goal of self-realization, then that can also be an impediment. But initially to start off like that is a positive thing. But where is your goal? What is your goal? That's what, it, that's what matters. Is that, is that clear to everyone? Even an unselfish desire to help others could also be an impediment to your path to self-realization on your spiritual goal. But it depends on your goal. If you just want to help others, then you're not increasing your personal selfish desires. 
But that's the difference. But it's a good starting point. Even if we can help others, others benefit, we benefit. Forget about spiritual development. How many of us can just do that? Even? It's the first step. Is that okay? So, any, any clarifications or any questions on that? Good. Um, verse 16, we covered, said, that by performing yagna sacrifice in our daily life, this is the correct way to live. And if you continue on that path, it allows you to progress in life to the ultimate goal of peace and bliss. Gives you a perfect life. So perform yagna sacrifice. Verse 17 said that not everyone needs to follow the, this wheel. Remember we said there's a wheel? Uh, we gave an example, which I'm not going to go into, but if you do yajna sacrifice, you reduce your desires, you develop spiritually, you do more yajna sacrifice, you, you develop spiritually until ultimately reach self-realization. So it said, everyone needs to follow this wheel. And if you do, you reach your goal in life. And it said, here is a description of an ideal human being who has done that, who has passed the wheel and reached the goal. Verse 17, 18 describes this person, a self-realized person who has gone beyond his vasanas. When we work in the spirit of service and sacrifice, fulfilling our obligatory duties in life, we shed our vasanas, and eventually we reach the state of enlightenment. When a person is in this state, they're completely content in the bliss of the self. We are the self covered by the body, mind, intellect. We don't identify with the self because of our ignorance. Instead, we identify with our body, mind, intellect. We're all caught up in the pleasures of the body, mind, intellect. We all act to fulfill these desires. We use our physical body, mind, and intellect to seek pleasures in the world, which creates further vasanas, further desires. A self-realized person has passed that stage of fulfilling desires for his material layers, his body, mind, intellect. His focus is on the self alone. No more obligatory duties, no more worldly desires. Therefore, they're self-sufficient for their happiness. A self-realized person identifies with the self within, the spirit within, the God principle within, and he has become one with that principle. Thereafter, the difference between the two is that one person is dependent on satisfying desires of his body, mind, intellect. But he's dependent on that. When something goes wrong, he can't deal with it. It's like walking on a plank. Every time they, you fall off the plank, you hurt yourself. It causes pain and suffering. The more involved that you are, the more agitation. But a self-realized person is not affected by this at all. He's not dependent on the world for his happiness. See, we can't understand that state. It's impossible for us to understand that state. But as you develop spiritual, as you gain more and more knowledge, and you identify more with the self within you, you get a glimpse of it. You get a feeling of it. You're less bothered about what goes on in the world. You're less bothered about your desires. Slowly, slowly. You become more happier. That's just a glimpse, a touch of that state. Any questions? That was just what we covered in the last few classes. 
So verse 18 is a continuation of verse 17, describing a self-realized person. Yes? So verse 18. Neva tasya krite na po na karte ne hakaschana na kasya sarva bhute su kaschidathavya pasrayaha neva tasya krite na po na karte ne hakaschana for him, a self-realized soul, there is no interest whatever here in what is done or what is not done, nor does it depend upon any being or any object. For him, there is no interest whatever here in what is done or what is not done, nor does it depend upon any being or any object. What does that mean? Anybody can explain what that means? No interest whatever in what is done or what is not done. No attachments fully at peace with himself or herself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anybody else? So not affected. Not affected. Okay. So whatever's done or whatever's happening, not affected by it. Okay. This person who has been doing um, karma yoga, functioning in the world, practicing karma yoga, yajna sacrifice and acting. He has reached that state of self-realization. All his vasanas has been exhausted. Now, has he reached that state? He has no more interest in doing anything in the world. There's no interest in the world. What is done, what is not done, he has no, no care. No attachment, as Ravi said, not affected by anything, as Sittal said. He has no interest in any objects or beings in the world. Can we imagine that state? No interest, Dipabin, no interest in the world. Totally liberated, free from the waking world and its objects and beings. Liberated from perceptions, from actions, emotions, thoughts, nothing affects him. Completely detached, dissociated from the waking world. Why is that, anyone? He's disassociated completely. Can anyone explain why he's in that state? We can only imagine what that state is like, affected by everything. He doesn't have any obligative duties to the world now. Okay. So he, so he doesn't have any responsibilities. He may have responsibilities still. He may have responsibilities uh, and duties still, but he's not bothered about it. He's not affected about it. He'll just do it. Yeah, Neelam? Because he's, um, it, well, it's almost like the veil of illusion is cleared and he's totally united with his self. He's in total fulfillment. Okay. You're, 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 half, you're nearly there. <laughs> You've explained that person perfectly. I'm looking for something else. Yeah, Vanita? He's, he's conscious, he's, he understands that he's God conscious. I don't know, maybe 
you're on the right ballpark. I'm looking for one specific sentence. He's removed all his attachments from this world. Yeah. Okay. So. He's, he's gone beyond the waking and dream state. So if he's gone beyond the waking and dream state, mm. there's no identification because he knows the fourth state only now. And he knows the other two are, don't matter. Because a selfless person is in a different state of consciousness now. And we're going to explain more of that in the, in the next two, the verse we're going to cover. He's in a different state of consciousness. Now you may say, well, what does that mean? We're going to explain that. Yeah, different state of consciousness, four states of consciousness, deep sleep, dream state, waking state, fourth state when you're liberated from the world, self-realization. So this person has moved up to the fourth state. And the example given in, in this, in, under this first, we're going to cover of how a self-realization person behaves in the world where he is not attached to anything. And the explanation or the example given is, imagine you go to bed tonight. You go to sleep and you enter a dream. We all dream, most of us. In the dream, you begin a charity. You want to do service. You've had this class today and service, sacrifice, karma is in your mind. And when you go to sleep, you start thinking about service and karma. So you start charity in the dream. There are so many homeless people around you. So you decide to go and start a charity to make homes for the homeless. You collect money from people you know, businesses, I've got this charity, I want to build some homes for the homeless people in this area. Please, can you help? It's a great service that you're doing. 10 years it takes you in the dream, by the way. Yeah, 10 years could go in a, in a minute in the dream. 10 years, you get enough money to build 50 flats. 50 flats for these homeless people. You find the land, you find a good builder. Even in a dream state, it's difficult to get a good builder. You look for the best builder. You get the 50 flats built. Then you find 50 families eligible to move into these homes. You're all with me, yeah? It's all happening in the dream tonight. You choose a day when you will give the keys to these people. You get the local mayor to give out the keys to these people in the ceremony. That day comes, everything is ready. The stage is prepared. The 50 homeless families are ready. The mayor has come, is on the stage, ready to hand over the keys and the documents. You're about to hand over the first set of keys to the mayor to give out. And just then your partner accidentally shoves you while you're, in, while you're in bed and you wake up. You look at the time, you have five minutes to go before the alarm is about to go off. Now, you know, when you wake up, you're still half asleep sometimes. You have the ability to go back into the dream. What will you do? Will you go back to hand over the keys and documents? I'm asking for your response. Would you go back in the dream? There's 50 families waiting. Would you go back in the dream to hand over the keys and documents? If your mind's awake, you start thinking about other stuff. You wouldn't even get back to that state. Okay, anybody else? Would you go back? 10 years, Nilam? No, because you know it's just a dream. You know it's just a dream. What will be his interest or your interest in what he's done or not done? 
in the dream. This is what this verse is saying. This is what this translation is saying. No interest whatever here in what is done, what is not done. Similarly, you have no interest in what is done or not done. No interest in the dream world now that you have woken up. Can everyone understand that example? You know, it's only a dream. It's make-believe. It's unreal. Similarly, when a person reaches self-realization, reaches that fourth state of consciousness, he views this waking world in the same way. No interest in whatever is going on in the world. For this person, it is like waking up from a dream. Totally free from any attachments to any objects or beings, emotions or thoughts. All those people waiting in the dream for the keys to the flats. Free from any attachments, any objects or beings, emotions or thoughts. For him, coming into the waking world is the same as a waker, yourself going back into that dream. Once you've reached that knowledge, once you've had this knowledge of the waking state, why would you go back? What would you care? That's the closest example we can give of what a person who reaches self-realization feels and sees and acts in this world, in the waking world. He is still alive. He will carry on living his life until his residual vastness is exhausted. But he won't have a care in the world. Any questions? Does that make sense, that example? How you feel about that dream, dream world when you open up is the same way a self-realization person feels about the waking world when he's reached that fourth state. Now you think about it, and the more you think about it, the more understanding you'll have of that state. Then why would he care about what duties he has, obligative duties? Because he wouldn't care. He may not care, but if it's his duty, then he'll still perform it to the best of his ability without worrying about the outcome, attachment, etc. He's not affected by anything, but if he, whatever duties he has, he will still perform. Does that make sense, Damesh? Because he's not dead. Yeah, he's not dead. You see, it's a point that you bring up, Damesh, and this is a really important point. In a lot of religions, they say when you die, you will go to heaven. When you die, you'll reach heaven. But in our scriptures, in the Gita, in Upanishad, they explain what heaven is like. They explain what that state is because you can get to that state in this waking world. Otherwise, it's something, well, okay, when I die, we'll see. They say, no, you'll go through that experience here while you're alive. But whatever vasanas are still remaining, they'll continue. But you're not bored about it. So, you had a question? So, if we're thinking about the dream state, that's a fragment of your mind uh, going into that um, dream state right so a self-realized person um will have got rid of um everything well he he, he won't be mind-led or he, he'll get he'll have got rid of his mind as such and um because if he's not affected it's the mind that is affected is attached is feeling the emotions is going through likes and dislikes and yeah things like that. So is it that the self-realized person has, if he's gone beyond the waking and dream state, 
he's gone from his mind to the subtle intellect fully, is it? See, if you look at self-realized people in the past who we know of, I mean, there's maybe loads, but people we know, like Ramna Maharishi, you've all heard of him. He never talked, he didn't do anything. He just sat there and looked at a distant point in the air, that's it. People came just to see him, just to be in his presence, but he didn't do anything. He just sat there. Not a care, not an interest in the world. Different self-realized people will behave differently. Anyway, this is just an idea of what this person goes through. So you have some idea, understanding. Any questions? Okay. Uh, Ravi. A self-realized soul has no obligatory duties to perform in the world. He has no interest at all in what is done or not done. He does not depend on any object or being. He enjoys absolute fulfillment. He has reached the stage of desirelessness. Compare the self-realized soul to a waker re-entering his earnest, earnest dream. The person in question has a dream. In the dream, he is a great social worker. The dreamer does yeoman service to the poor in the dream. He collects large sums of money and builds homes for the homeless. Then he arranges a grand function with a dignitary who will distribute the building documents to the recipients. At that crucial moment, when the distribution is about to commence, he wakes up from the dream. Just imagine that he has a passport to re-enter the very same dream. What will be his interest in what is done or not done? Will he be keen on completing the project? Is he dependent on anyone or anything in the dream to satisfy his desire of the dream? Upon waking, the waker instantly dissociates, detaches, disconnects himself from the dream world. He has nothing to do with it. Similarly, upon reaching the fourth plane of God consciousness, the enlightened soul too wakes up from a dream, as it were. He finds himself totally liberated from the waking world of objects and beings perceptions and actions, emotions and thoughts. Thank you, Ravi. So this person doesn't have to do any more karma yoga. He's reached the goal of what, where karma yoga takes you. Okay, verse 19. <laughs> To ya charan karma, parma apnoti purushaha, dasma dasakta satatam, karyam karma samachara, asakto ya charan karma, parma apnoti purushaha. Therefore, without attachment, always perform actions which should be done. For by performing action without attachment, man reaches the Supreme. This is the conclusion of this topic from verse 4 to 19. So topic 1 of chapter 3, verse 1 to 3, Krishna introduced action. Topic 2, verse 4 to 19, Krishna used logic and reason for why Arjuna should perform the action. He was appealing to his intellect. This is why you need to do action, Arjuna. This verse is the last verse of this topic, and Krishna concludes, therefore, the smart means therefore. 
a logical conclusion. You'll find this word a lot in the Gita verses, therefore, dasmad. Therefore, act well, meaning carry out actions without attachment. If you want to reach the supreme, meaning self-realization. This is how you need to act, without attachment. What was Arjuna attached to? What was Arjuna attached to? The relationships, the bonds. To? The family, his uncles, his brothers. Arjuna was attached to his kinsmen, his relatives in the other army. That's what he was attached to. Therefore, when he went to the middle of the battlefield with Krishna and saw all his friends and relatives, he dropped his bow and arrow and collapsed. And because of his attachment to them, he could not fight. He could not perform his obligatory duty as a warrior. Remember, Arjuna was one of the best warriors in the land. He had won so many battles. People feared him in battle. And so it's not that he can't fight. It's fighting is a second nature. But because of his attachment, he couldn't fight. Are you all clear with that? A doctor is a brilliant heart surgeon. One of the best surgeons in, in the country. But his wife has a heart attack and he has to operate on her. Can you imagine how difficult it is for that person? He may be the best surgeon in heart surgeon in the country, but how to operate on his wife or his son or his daughter? That attachment comes in the way. He'll say to his junior or another doctor, please, you do it. I can't do this one. Do you understand attachment? Best warrior, he couldn't fight. What is the definition of attachment, anyone? What is the definition of attachment? Something we covered very early on. It's um, when you're emotionally affected by that person and whatever they do affects mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. So you, yeah. that's how you're attached to them. And you're dependent on them for that as well. That's the result of attachment in an action. Anybody else? What is attachment? So? Preferential relationships. Preferential relationships, yeah. Mental, emotional bondage. resulting from unintelligent preferential relationship with the object of attachment. This is the proper definition. Mental emotional bondage resulting from unintelligent preferential relationship with the object of attachment. Unintelligent means you're not, you're not using your intellect. Where does the attachment come from? The mind. Any questions on attachment? Your mind gets attached to everything. So, as long as we have vastness, desires, we have to perform our obligations in life. Our duties, our responsibilities must be carried out in life. We all have responsibilities and obligations. We have to perform these. But the problem in performing our duties in life, we all know what it is, is that the mind interferes. You all have the great intentions, but the mind interferes. After today's class, you say, okay, tomorrow morning, I'm going to do my morning study. I need to get on track with this subject. What happens in the morning? Alarm goes off. 
The mind says, not now, we'll start tomorrow. What's one day gonna make the difference? Mind interferes with your obligatory duties. Comes in the way with its own likes and dislikes. I like to stay in bed this morning, forget the studying. And this happens to everyone. You all know your duties, but the mind comes in the way while you're performing those duties with its own likes and dislikes. Does that make sense? Can everyone relate to that? So what stops you from performing your obligatory duties? Huh? What stops you? Your mind. Shabbat. Your mind, the attachment from the mind, your likes and dislikes. And when this comes in the way, it creates further desires. This is the problem. So you all have the right intentions, but not the, the capacity to control the mind. This is the problem. Can you all relate to that? Because even I can relate to that. All the, you have all the right intentions. I need to go and start exercising from tomorrow. All intentions, then you mean it. I must start doing this from now. I need to, intellect is saying this. I must start. So you've made that decision. I want to do this. So what's stopping you then? Then you, you're, you're, you yourself is saying, I don't want to do it. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. <laughs> How silly is that? That's the difference. That's why we say develop the intellect because only the intellect can control the mind. The intellect is the adult in us all. Therefore, the intellect must govern our actions not our likes and dislikes. I need to do this, but I would like to do this instead. Or I don't want to do it, even though I have to do it. So if we act in this way, then we destroy our desires. And this is how we reach God realization. It's our vasanas, our desires that keeps us attached to the world. Any questions? See, all this is happening within you, but you don't know why. So Krishna is explaining, this is why this is happening within you. They've analyzed everything. It's great sages. This is how a human being functions. Nilam. Krishna gives out the logic and reason for action in verses 4 to 19 to pull Arjuna out of his state of inaction. Overwhelmed with emotion on seeing his own kinsmen in the opposing forces, the great warrior succumbed to a neurotic state. And as the battle was about to start, he dropped his bow and arrow and refused to fight. With all his powers of reason, Krishna appeals to Arjuna to fulfill his obligation as a Satriya warrior. In this verse, he concludes his intellectual reasoning. Therefore, perform action without attachment and reach the Supreme. If you aspire to reach the Supreme, you must carry out your duties and responsibilities in life. As long as you have vasanas, desires, you are bound to certain obligatory functions. You must not avoid them. You must constantly endeavor to fulfill your obligations. But your powerful likes and dislikes come in the way. They prevent you from doing what you ought to do in life. You yield instead to the attachments and desires of your mind, doing whatever your mind likes to do and avoiding what it dislikes. However, your preferences may often conflict with your duties. Only your intellect, not your mind, can judge and decide the right course of action. Your mind has attachments and desires. Therefore, your actions should be decided by your discriminating intellect. Thus, acting without attachment, you destroy your desires and reach the ultimate state of perfection. Thank you. So, Arjuna, where, what is he, what's happening to him? What's happening to Arjuna? 
based on what Neelam has just read, what is happening to Arjuna? In a nutshell, what is happening to Arjuna? Vanita? He's thinking about his likes and dislikes and thinking about what he's attached to instead of what he should be doing. Which is his obligatory duty. He's the one who decided, him and his brothers, that this battle must happen. Yeah, they decided this battle must happen. They thought about it. The only way to get rid of Duryodhan, even they don't want to, they have to fight him. So they've all decided, they planned for it for years. Everything is ready. So the only thing stopping him is his mind, his attachments. And this is what happens. So that's end of topic two. Now, topic three is five verses. How logical is this? In topic two, Krishna gave out logic and reason as to why a person should act, yes? Perform karma yoga and you'll reduce your desires and reach your goal as a human being, becoming one with the self, God consciousness. But Krishna see, can see that Arjuna is still not 100% woken up. So what does Krishna do? In the next five verses, 20 to 24, which is topic three, Krishna makes an emotional, psychological appeal. Arjuna is in this emotional state. Intellectual reasoning is not working. So Krishna, so Krishna thinks, well, okay, he's not woken up. It's still emotional. Let me target his mind. Let me target his emotions. So in the next five verses, Krishna uses six emotional appeals. First, devotional. Second, persuasion. Third, vanity. Fourth, personal appeal. And then fifth, fear. And sixth, threat. Intellectually, it's not, it's not responding. So what does this mean? In a nutshell, when we talk to a child, we say, do your homework. What do you say? Do your homework, you'll pass your exams, you'll become, when you're an adult, you get a good job, get lots of money. The child doesn't understand this. So then you think this ain't working, use a different tactic. You say, do your homework, only then you can go out and play. Only then you can play on your computer. That doesn't work. You might persuade the child. Do your homework, I'll make you your favorite meal. You try all these different tactics. Then if still that doesn't work, you may use threat. Do your homework, I'll tell dad when he comes home. He doesn't want his dad to be told. Fear, threat. First is an intellectual appeal. If that does not work, emotional appeal, then threat. This is what we all do, isn't it? When it comes to children, same thing Krishna is doing to Arjuna. Yeah, just to give you a comparison. So, and it works because Arjuna is in an emotional state and now he's appealing to his mind, it works. So and after the next five verses, Arjuna is fully awake. At last, Arjuna is woken up. So then from verse 25, Krishna explains what a right action is, how to perform action. He goes into detail. Any questions? Does everyone understand that example I've just given? This is exactly what's going to happen in the next five verses um, when Krishna appeals to Arjuna from an emotional perspective, emotional appeals for action. So we'll do the first verse. Karma neva hisam siddhim ashtita janakadayaha loka sangraha mevapi 
संपस्यंकाटुमर्हसि कर्मनेवाहि समसित्तिम अष्टिताजनकादयः लोकसंग्रहमेवापी संपस्यंकाटुमर्हसि वैरली Verily, by action alone, Janaka and others attain perfection. Even with an eye to the welfare of the world, also you should perform action. Verily, by action alone, Janaka and others attain perfection. Even with an eye to the welfare of the world, also you should perform action. So. First paragraph, Hema, could you please? Hema, is it you reading? I'm, I'm reading on behalf. In the preceding 16 verses, Krishna tried intellectually to convince Arjuna to fight the battle. Now in topic three, Krishna approaches him psychologically to induce him to action. Perhaps it takes this new stance because Arjuna had not shown any signs of recovery from the state of inaction into which he had fallen. In verses <laughs> 20 to 24, Krishna tries six emotional appeals to revive Arjuna from his mental debacle. Arjuna then displays a positive reaction to this combination of intellectual and psychological approaches. This is evidenced by Krishna starting his great sermon on the technique of action after delivering both appeals. He gives a masterly exposition of what is right action in 11 verses, starting with verse 25. Thank you. So, as I said, having appealed to Arjuna intellectually to act in the previous verses, in this topic, Krishna approaches Arjuna psychologically. To act, meaning he appeals to his mind. Before he appealed to his intellect, didn't work. Now he's appealing to his mind. So he refers to great people in the past that Arjuna admires, Arjuna respects, such as Janaka, Asvapati. He said they had followed the path of action. They were like you. They followed this path of action and they become self-realized, Arjuna. These are people you bow down to, you respect. Why don't you follow their path? They did it and you respect for them. You have respect for them. Why can't you do it? Why can't you perform your duty? Arjuna's waking up thinking, yes, they did it. I should do it as well. He's now thinking, Krishna, you make sense. These are great people. I can become like that. Krishna first appeals to Arjuna's devotion to the great personalities of the past. The reference to Janika and others partially includes Asvapati, Isvaku, Pralada, and Ambrisa. These great masters had in the past followed the path of action, Karma Yoga, to realize God. Arjuna knew and revered them all. Krishna uses Arjuna's devotion to them to encourage him to follow in their footsteps and to perform his obligatory duty. So he's appealing to Arjuna's devotion to these great people in the past, saying they did it, you're devoted to them, you should follow them. Then the second approach Krishna uses is a personal appeal. Arjuna, even if you don't want to fight for yourself, Arjuna, you should fight for the benefit of the people. Your people are suffering. They've been neglected, ostracized. Duryodhana's been giving them a really hard time. You have a duty to your people. Don't think about yourself. You're attached to, the, to, the, to these, your uncles and your cousins, fair enough. But they're not good people. Look whose side they're fighting. You have a duty as a king 
to your people. Ravi. A second psychological tactic also appears in this verse. Krishna uses persuasion as a means to engage Arjuna in action. He appeals, even if you personally wish to avoid fighting this battle, you should fight anyway for the benefit and general welfare of the people. Arjuna emphasized with the masses. Krishna makes good use of his emotion for inducing him to action. Thank you. So there's not much uh, uh, intellectual knowledge because it's, he's targeting his mind. So I can't give you any intellectual advice on these, on these verses because it's all to do with the mind. But you can relate to what Krishna is trying to do person who's not intellectual, then you have to use a different approach, a different method to appeal to them. Any questions? So the next three verses, we will cover them. Next four verses, we'll cover them next week. The further emotional appeals, Krishna to Arjuna. And then he wakes up. And that's when Krishna starts his sermon from verse 25 and explains action. O Bharata, as the ignorant act attached to action, so should the wise one act unattached, wishing the welfare of the world. That's his verse, verse of Karma Yoga, which we will try and cover next week or the week after. So um, Tuesdays, we're having a group discussion. Uh, we're going to have it regularly now. So please join us. It's informal. You can ask questions, anything relating to Vedanta, any issues you want to talk about. We just have a general chat and discussion of life and Vedanta. So feel free to join us on Tuesday at 7.30. Have a lovely Sunday.